I'd like you to imagine um, a long-living scholarly visitor from another planet, a sort of professor of intergalactic comparative religion who has decided to study Christianity. He decides to visit Earth to do his field study, to discover the practices, the habits, the concerns of a representative sample of Christians. Being so long-living and not bound by the concerns of funding from people like the Economic and Social Science Research Council, he decides to make his observations over the centuries. His first visit is to a group of the original Jerusalem Christians in about AD 37. He notes that they are all Jews. Indeed, they meet in the temple where only Jews can enter. They offer animal sacrifice. They keep the seventh day free from work. They circumcise their male children. They delight in reading old law books. They actually look like many of the existing denominations of Judaism, but their distinguishing feature is that they equate the figures of the Messiah, the Son of Man, and the Suffering Servant, which is found in these old books, with a recent prophet teacher called Jesus of Nazareth. They live normal family lives, they are socially quite tight-knit, they eat together often. Law and joyful observance strike our spaceman friend as keynotes of the religion. His next visit is in around 325 AD. He attends a meeting of the great church leaders of the time, perhaps the Council of Nicaea. They come from all over the Mediterranean world, but hardly any are Jewish. Indeed, there's quite a bit of hostility towards the Jews. They are horrified by the idea of animal sacrifice. When they talk about sacrifice, they talk about the bread and wine, rather like that which was eaten in the houses in Jerusalem. They don't have children because church leaders are not expected to marry. But if they did, they certainly wouldn't circumcise them. The seventh day is now an ordinary working day. The first day has special observances. They use the same law books that the Jerusalem Christians used, but they give equal weight to another set of writings, mostly it appears letters, which were not even composed at that time. Their current passionate preoccupation is with another document. The debate hinges over a single letter iota in Greek and it's about whether Jesus was of the same substance or merely a similar substance as the Father. Our spaceman professor notices a great deal of concern for metaphysics, the theology and philosophy of part of the Christian religion. He thinks back to the Jerusalem Christians and just wonders... 300 years later, and it's time for another visit. This time he lands on the coast of Ireland. A number of monks are gathered. Some are standing in ice-cold water up to their necks, reciting the Psalms. One is receiving six strokes of the lash for failing to answer Amen when grace was said. One or two are sitting in dark caves as hermits. Others are going off on a small boat in doubtful weather with a box of beautiful manuscripts and not much else, to visit islands off the west coast of Scotland and persuade these inhabitants to follow their religion. Our professor establishes that these books are the same writings that the Greeks used. He noticed that the monks recite the same formula agreed at Nicaea. But in general, they don't really seem to be interested in theology or metaphysics. 
They seem mostly interested in holiness and heroic austerity. Our spaceman friend delays his next visit until the 1840s. He comes to London's Exeter Hall, a large and excited assembly are debating the desire of promoting Christianity, commerce and civilization in Africa. They are proposing to send missionaries armed with Bibles and cotton seed 4,000 miles to do this. Large numbers of the meeting at the meeting are carrying small black books. Close inspection proves that this is the same writings as the Irish books, but in English translation. They also accept without question the Nicene Creed. They use the word holy a lot, but they wouldn't associate that with standing up to their necks in cold water or living in a cave. While the monks seem to be trying to live on as little as possible, this lot look pretty well fed. What most impresses our observer is their activism and the involvement of religion in all areas of their society. In 1990, he returns again to Lagos, Nigeria. A white-robed group are walking around the streets announcing that they are the cherubim and seraphim and inviting people to experience the power of God in their services. They claim God has messages for particular individuals. His power can be demonstrated in healing. They say, when shown, that they accept the creed of Nicaea, but they display very little interest in it. They carry in quote from the same book as the Exeter Hall people, but they're not really politically active. They fast like the Irish, but only on specific occasions. Our professor notes their concern with power principally, as revealed in preaching, healing and visions. This set of scenarios for which I'm indebted to a church historian called Andrew Walls illustrates a real set of problems for our spaceman academic to untangle. How can all these groups be Christian when so much is different in what they do, even contradictory? These are mainstream representative examples of the church across the, cult of the centuries. How much of what these groups did was actually just shaped by the prevailing culture. What elements do they actually have in common? In what way are they shaped by their faith? And this is a real issue for us today. Among the many, many ways of being church and of doing church today, how can we be sure that we remain a, shape, a church shaped by our faith, shaped by the gospel. Rather than taking you further on my little expedition into church history, I want to turn to, instead to a church that has been described as a model church, the church at Thessalonica. We saw last week that it was, could be described as a church that can't be ignored, even though it was started in about four weeks flat. And so we continue our sermon series looking at this church and see how the Thessalonians became shaped by the Gospel. So please open your Bibles or turn back to page 1187, Thessalonians chapter 2. In the first 12 verses of this chapter, we get a bit of a history lesson from Paul. 
we learn what happens when he visited Thessalonica. Some commentators think Paul is being a little bit defensive. He, after all, opens with this phrase to claim that his visit was not a failure. But we do get to learn a little bit just how Paul and his team spoke and acted in those intense four weeks between arriving in this new place and actually, shortly afterwards, being kicked out. And I want to pick out from these 12 verses a number of, a number of themes. Firstly, Paul makes it very clear that they came to Thessalonica with good news, which is, after all, what gospel means. In verse 1, we dared to tell you his gospel. Verse 4, we speak as men approved by God and to be entrusted with the gospel. Verse 8, we were delighted to share with you the gospel of God. Verse 9, we preached the gospel of God to you. The visit was about the gospel, the good news. But what was that news? What did Paul and his team actually say? Fortunately, we have Luke's account of, his, of the visit in Acts chapter 17. In verse 3, Luke writes, On three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. The establishment then of the church at Thessalonica came with a clear, even perhaps a model presentation of the good news about Jesus. And in particular, teachings about his sufferings, his death and his resurrection. I think this is a a clear reminder of what is the core of our faith. What is it that our spaceman friend would want to understand about us if he came to visit us today? We preach Jesus. We preach him crucified. We preach him risen from the dead. We note that in that account by Luke, Paul did this with reference to the scriptures, the, things that the, the writings the Jewish people already understood, which we can also take as a trustworthy and model way of expanding and expounding the word of God to people. And the exciting thing is that this nascent church at Thessalonica received this news and accepted it and was built together by it. Paul brought good news He brought the gospel and the church received that gospel. Secondly, Paul reminds them in these few verses that the news was brought to them at some great cost. In verse 2 he says, we have suffered, previously suffered and been insulted. Verse 9, surely you remember brothers our toil and hardship, we worked night and day. The good news of Jesus was brought to them by those who had suffered and toiled hard for the sake of the gospel. I don't know about you, but when you get news, perhaps when you get surprisingly good news, you do ask a little bit about motivation. I want to tell you a little bit about Zacchaeus. 
When we moved to Salato in Tanzania, Zakayo turned up on our doorstep one day. He was a catechist, a recognised evangelist of the church, who had been put in charge of a small, small church at Ilolo, which was a village about three or four kilometres away. He himself lived the other way from us, so it was more than an hour's walk from his house to the village. He viewed the entire village of about several hundred people as his responsibility. It was a very poor village, both materially and spiritually. Materially, there were issues like water. It had to be fetched a long way away. Spiritually, there was an old and mud church which was in a really poor state. He worked so hard. He wanted to build a proper church building. He wanted to make it a community building for the whole village. He wanted it made of solid foundations. He wanted it made of concrete. And he also wanted to get a water pump installed for the village. And he worked tirelessly for that village. So when Zakayo preached to them, he listened. He'd worked hard for them. He had suffered, really, because there was almost no time for him to do his own farming or build up his own life. Sometimes the work made him quite ill. He wasn't very much interested in in his own side of things. The imperative of the gospel was what was important. So when when he asked us to get involved with that church as well, we were really willing. Don't we value something more if it has cost something than something that has just arrived for free? As Paul brings the good news to Thessalonica, surely they must be impressed by the lengths to which he had gone to, by the times of suffering, the times of insult, the times of toil, the times of hardship. And thirdly, in this little group of 12 verses, Paul says lots about the way the team acted. Firstly, they were loving. Verse 8, we loved you so much. Verse 7, we were gentle with you, among you, like a mother caring for her little children. Verses 11 and 12, we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Paul and his team were loving and they were honest. Verse 3, for the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. Verse 5, we never use flattery nor did we put on a mask to cover up our greed. Verse 10, You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. Thirdly, they weren't looking for human praise. Verse 4, We are not trying to please men, but God. Verse 6, we are not looking for praise from men, not from you or from anyone else. And they weren't a burden. Verse 6 and 7, we could have been a burden to you, but 
we weren't. Verse 9, we worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone. In short, this was a team who were motivated by a desire to please God, who lived by the gospel values as well as preached them, who presented good news in what they did as well as what they said, who presented the good news with a servant heart and an attitude of service. I think it's sometimes right to be wary of people who proclaim the medium is the message. But I think in this case, it's true. God worked through that team to display the glory of Jesus in the power of the Spirit, to show the Thessalonians the truth, both in word and deed. Earlier in chapter 1, Paul puts it like this, chapter 1, verse 5, our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. God added to the words Paul preached. The gospel came as a result with power and the newly emerging church received it. I think there are perhaps two other lessons for us from this little section. Firstly, we need to welcome those who are bringing the message to us. If people come to us with the gospel, with new and relevant insight from the scriptures for us as a church community, if they come through suffering and toil, and if they come in love and with integrity, then let us receive them well. Let us be humble enough to be a receiving church. God can do great things with us as we do. And secondly, this whole process, this whole description is just a great reminder of how we take the gospel on into our own community and into other communities. The message we take will be heard not just by our words, but by the power of the Spirit and in our love, our honesty, our modesty and so on. A church then that received the gospel and a church then that lived that gospel out. Let's turn to verses 13 to 16. These four verses are really a continuation of the opening chapter. Paul starts his letter saying, we always thank God for all of you, and continues at verse 13 saying, we also thank God continually. And in these little three verses, uh, four verses, he goes on to thank God for two more things. Firstly, that the Thessalonians have accepted the word of God. In verse 13, the word of God which is at work in you who believe. What a great little sentence. The word of God which is at work in you who believe. The Christians of Thessalonica are being built up, are being strengthened by the word of God. By which we can understand perhaps not just the actual message that they heard from God via Paul, 
But the continuation of that message as they have come to grips with the rest of Scripture in the light of Jesus. The Word of God has been brought in some small way by Paul to that community and God is using it to magnify himself so that people continue to understand more and more about Jesus in the light of the rest of Scripture. The Word of God. And this Word is at work. This Word is at work in them, producing the results that we have seen earlier in chapter 1 last week. Paul already commented that in chapter 1, verse 3. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And Daniel showed us last week how this faith, love and hope that only God can produce is the secret of the reputation of the Thessalonian church. The word of God is at work producing results as the Christians there meditate on it and develop it into their lives. The word of God at work in you who believe. This is happening in you who believe. God's mandate to us needs to be accepted by faith. It's not just enough to hear it. There's an African proverb, a stick in the swamp will never become a crocodile. I think the modern Christian equivalent is sitting in a garage doesn't make you a car and sitting in a church doesn't make you a Christian. We need to believe. We need to take our steps of faith. We need to let the word of God be at work in our lives. Daniel touched on this last week when he said we desperately need that word of God to come to us with power and conviction. We can't make it do so. We need God to work by the Holy Spirit. And we need to pray. So the Thessalonian church have accepted the word of God and it is working in their lives. But secondly, they've also suffered for the sake of the gospel. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen. This church indeed had been born in turmoil. They had been rioting when some of its members left the synagogue and joined them and they got into all sorts of trouble with the city authorities. One of the very new Christians, a guy called Jason, had to post some sort of insurance bonds with the city people against any future trouble. Paul and Silas eventually had to leave under cover of darkness and even after they left, the persecution continued. And as so often happens, their faith was refined by toil and suffering. Paul includes these few verses as an encouragement. He wants the Thessalonians to know that they should be encouraged in their suffering, encouraged by the church in Judea as it joins in suffering with them. And once again, this is uncomfortable for us. First-hand suffering for our faith is pretty rare in Western Christianity. 
it's difficult to equate some of the minor restrictions we might face in this country with the severe persecution faced in other countries around the world. We've prayed this morning for believers in Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan. I've been able to travel a little bit around this world in Tanzania. We knew it was not unheard of for Muslim converts to be completely kicked out of their family when they converted to Christianity. And in most cases, in rural areas, kicked out of their village, never able to go back home. We knew one man who would attend worship secretly in fear of his family. We should too be encouraged by the suffering of Christians around the world and know that suffering refines and shapes the church that is trying to live out the gospel. So, a church receiving the gospel, a church living the gospel, and finally a church shaped in both those ways by the gospel. We learn from our teachers. We learn by imitation. We learn from experience. And we can see in this passage that the church in Thessalonica has been shaped by the gospel message brought by Paul, both in word and deed. It's been shaped by the word of God working through them and by the experience of suffering for the cause of the gospel. In short, it's been shaped by the gospel. And as a result, it's become not just a receiving church, but a sending church. We learn of its reputation across a great chunk of Greece in chapter 1, verse 8. The Lord's message rung out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has made you known everywhere. It's not just a receiving church, but a sending church. Elsewhere in, in the Bible, we learn two or three other interesting things about the church. We learn, for example, that Paul's mission trip to them was in, at least in part funded by the believers at Philippi. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes, For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. So the Thessalonian church was from the beginning part of the wider international community of believers. In Acts chapter 20 verse 4, we learn of two characters called Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica who end up on mission teams with Paul. Jason, who I mentioned earlier, perhaps turns up in Corinth. This is a church that has released good people into ministry elsewhere. And doubtless it's used the experience of these travellers to good effect. Based in a cosmopolitan city, it's welcomed Jews and Greeks into its membership. It's worked locally with that awareness of the known world. As a church, it has become a partner. A mutuality existed with other churches. Thessalonica has been shaped not just by the gospel, by the sending and the receiving of this gospel. Here's a little diagram that perhaps sums up a little bit about what's been going on in that church. This is something that we've been using at CMS recently to encourage churches to think about their place as part of the global church and as part of the local church. As we work with God doing mission, we can send 
and we can receive. We can send globally, perhaps participating in global mission. But we can receive globally. We can learn from the church internationally. We can act locally by sending, doing local mission with that global awareness, much like the church in Thessalonica must have done. And we can receive from the global community locally, much as the Thessalonians received from Paul and the team. So a church shaped by the gospel, shaped by the sending and receiving of that gospel and by the interrelationship of God's people on a global and a local scale. As a result of all that, Paul holds it up as a model church in chapter 1 verse 7 and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Back to our spaceman academic. I think if he looked at his available evidence hard enough, he would find enough to conclude that the essence of the Christian faith was there in each of his visits. He would have seen a continuity in such things as the final significance of Jesus, the sense of history of God's dealings with his people and the use of the Bible and the scriptures. He would have also perhaps noticed the use of water in baptism and the use of bread and wine in communion, which we will also be doing in a few moments. But I would also hope that if he chose to continue his research by visiting us here at Magdalen Road, he would see, and perhaps a bit obscured by the cultures of 21st century East Oxford, but he would see some of the same qualities as he could see in that little church at Thessalonica? Would he see a church receiving and giving out that same good news? Would he see a church doing this in service, in love, with honesty? Would he see a church living out the gospel, toiling and suffering for the sake of Jesus? Would he see a church clearly shaped by the gospel?